Hello and welcome to the Cinematchups podcast. We are your hosts, Sean Rodenberg, and your name is Kim Kohler. Yes, sir, boss, like the plumbing company, only not spelled the same. <laughs> so today we have two really great movies for you guys. A nice quote to start you off from the movie The Green Mile that comes in at our ninth seed versus Atonement. That's our eighth seed for this week. So for comparison, we have Atonement that has an 83% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes based on a novel written by Ian McEwan in 2001. The film was released in 2007 and opened at the Venice Film Festival, making Joe Wright, the director of Atonement, the youngest director at age 35 to ever open the Venice Film Festival. It was nominated for seven Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Adapted Screenplay, Supporting Actress Saoirse Ronan, who got her first Oscar nomination for this film, Best Cinematography, Art Direction, Costume Design, and then won an Oscar for Best Original Score. Also won the Golden Globe for Best Motion Picture Drama, which I feel like is a common theme of this bracket challenge so far. A lot of films we've watched have won the Globe for Picture Drama and then haven't really picked up anything at the Oscars. By comparison, we have The Green Mile that comes in at a 78% approval rating based on a novel by Stephen King that was published in 1996. The film released in 1999 was directed by Frank Darabont, known for adapting Stephen King novels. He directed The Shawshank Redemption and The Mist. The Green Mile was nominated for four Oscars, did not win any, but was nominated for Best Picture, Best Supporting Actor for Michael Clark Duncan, Best Sound, and Best Adapted Screenplay. Mixed reviews for this one. A lot of reviewers comparing it to Shawshank Redemption because the director did both of these movies. Which is not fair. Super, super not fair. Made me really angry actually reading the reviews for both of these movies because you had critics on both ends of the spectrum for both of them. And the fact that these are both eight and nine seeds in our bracket, granted they have 83 and 78% approval ratings, but I think that's really low for both of these movies because these movies had, I mean, multiple award nominations really great shots, really great characters, really great acting. Overall, two movies we really, really liked. So we'll get into them, talk about some of our favorite scenes, some themes, some strengths, weaknesses, little details, and battle it out until we have one come up on top. So transitioning into those themes of the movie, the first one... Both have multiple Oscar nominations. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's the theme and moving on. No, just kidding. So the most obvious theme for both of them, and both of these intersected really well in terms of themes, but the biggest theme for both of them is the theme of false accusations. So we have two movies, both that center on characters who have false accusations brought upon them. So I guess we'll start with Atonement, where we have Robbie's character, who is a man who works for Cecilia's and Briny's family at their house. And Cecilia and Robbie begin this kind of love affair where Bryony witnesses these things going on, is suspicious, intercepts a letter that Robbie writes to Cecilia. And then later in the film, we see them out on a search for their cousins who came into town. And one of the cousins, Lola, is seen by Bryony being sexually assaulted in the woods And Briny turns this into the accusation to accuse Robbie of doing this. And then we see it unfold from there. 
And then you have the Green Mile where we have Michael Clark Duncan's character, John Coffey, who comes to the Green Mile where Tom Hanks, Paul's character, works with other correctional officers. And the Green Mile is basically death row for these inmates that are up for execution. And we have John Coffey come and he's accused of rape and murder of two little girls. And eventually throughout the whole movie, we see how that unfolds and how those accusations come down to it. But watching both of these movies, there's so much more than just what the accused crime is. Correct. These movies could have easily been turned into whodunits. Yes. And both of them did not feel that way. Especially atonement, right? Because all of the characters, when this sexual assault happens, they're all wearing suits. So it really could be like a who in the suit did it. And basically you could just take every single male character and be like, these are all the people that did it. Let's find out who it was. And really, like you said, turn it into a whodunit. But I I really love the way these two films actually did it. Right. And when you talk about atonement, it's interesting because throughout the whole movie, you're watching the relationships evolve and you're watching Cecilia and Robbie connect through the years. And you're watching Briny go from a 13-year-old to an 18-year-old in a jump. And at one point, I caught myself watching and being so engrossed with the building of the relationships that I was like, oh, crap, I forgot that there was a big part of this movie of this false accusation that we still have not solved and we don't know for sure what happened. Well, that's the great part about this movie is that with these multiple times that Bryony sees something, I guess I would generalize it as suspicious between Robbie and Cecilia, she isn't really sure what she's seeing and they make sure that they go through the scene twice to show you what Bryony thinks and then what's actually happening between Robbie and Cecilia. You're watching this love grow. But Bryony is just seeing like this creepy dude that she even calls when she's talking to Lola, a sex maniac, because she like intercepts this note. She reads this note. And I think the way they show these scenes twice makes it that much stronger where you start to doubt what Bryony actually saw once the sexual assault happens because she seems so adamant that it is Robbie. And you know from watching these scenes like double play out that she is not actually knowing what she's seeing. And talking about Bryony too, the interesting thing when you're saying how those cutaways to what's actually happening versus Bryony's perceptions clue you in onto what the actual relationship is between Cecilia and Robbie. What's funny is I was watching this movie and I was like, am I supposed to hate this 13 year old kid? Like I was watching it and I was like, her perceptions of this are so wrong. But at the same time, she's 13. And Robbie says it later in the film when she's 18 and comes to talk to him and Cecilia and says, how old do you have to be before you know the difference between right and wrong? And that put it back into my head of, oh, shit, like, how old does she have to be before I can be angry at her for lying? Well, let's stay with this topic because I actually find it interesting because she is apparently not old enough to realize that faking a drowning is not a joke. There's this whole scene where she looks at Robbie and they're by a... They're at like a lake or something lake, like that and some, she's swimming. Yeah. Well, she's not even swimming yet. She's just kind of sitting on the side and she says, if I jumped in, you'd save me, right? And Robbie said, yeah, absolutely. So she jumps in and he saves her and pulls her up and she's like, oh, hooray, you saved me. You saved me. She's this little 13 year old girl. You saved me. Look what you did. 
and he brings her out and he kind of yells at her about like this isn't a game this is your life that drowning is very serious and at that point I'm with you where I don't know if I can be angry at this person because they don't even realize that drowning is serious or can you be angry at them because this girl is more manipulative and self-centered or is it because she's lonely and lives in this giant house where she only seemingly has her sister and Robbie to really talk to because the mom is super detached from all of them. The brother comes around once in a while and she doesn't really have a lot of connections. So the whole movie, you're almost wondering who to root for. You want everyone to have a happy ending. I think in this movie, mostly you want Robbie and Cecilia to be together because they love each other. But at the same time, you want to not resent Briny. And that's the whole point of this movie is atonement and atoning for the things that you have messed up in life. But it is at what point is she old enough to know to not wrongly accuse someone of such a heinous crime? I think just in general, the realisticness of it is that's a tough thing to ask a 13 year old who says that she saw a sexual assault. And someone says, well, who did it? And she doesn't know. Could you believe if a 13 year old came up to you and was like, I saw sexual assault and you said, who did it? And they were like, I don't know. You'd be like, what do you mean? You don't know. You saw it. So I think there's also. But they asked her that, you know, did you see it or did you know? Do you know it was him? Did you see him or do you think it was him? And she said, like, I saw him. And that was the point of it. Like, and that's what fueled Robbie's anger throughout the entire film was that she lied so confidently in saying she saw him and not that she thought it was him or maybe it was him because he wasn't around. It was I saw him. I guess I agree. It's just a tricky place to put a 13 year old. Yeah, I'm just trying to get my feelings out on this podcast because I did sit and watch this movie and we real honestly try not to talk to each other during these movies because we want to talk about it organically in this podcast. But I turned to you at one point in time and said, I think I really hate Saoirse Ronan in this movie. Like, I think I really hate this child and I need to check myself as an adult woman for hating this 13 year old child. Well, she ends up being better once she turns 18. She ends up tracking down Cecilia and Robbie, who Cecilia has cut off ties with the family and moved away to be with Robbie, who is at war. And the thing is, Briny also goes into nursing school and almost does the complete opposite where she was sentencing Robbie. Now she's helping people and that's what her job is and she enjoys it. And I think that's a fun correlation, those things being on opposite sides of the spectrum and her almost feeling so bad for what she did to Robbie that she has to overcompensate by jumping into a profession where she helps people. And you see the difference between her character and Robbie and Cecilia, where Robbie and Cecilia are harboring this resentment towards her throughout the whole film, but are able to really move on with their lives. And you only get to see Briny until age 18 and then later on in the movie as an older woman who finally writes this book. But it seems like Briny's whole life almost is about this atonement concept. And she's going to nursing school and she's walking through all of these wounded soldiers and sees someone who looks like Robbie at one point and goes, Robbie, because she is forever trying to atone for the lies that she has told. And it's really interesting, the concept of how long can you hold on to this and where do you find closure? 
And she finds closure at the very end of the film. But her whole search for it, while choppy, because you only see her at 13, 18, and then an older woman. But you get the whole sense that this has happened for a long time for her. Yeah. So we do get to see her when she's an old lady, which kind of brings us back into the Green Mile. Because both of these movies are told from the perspective of the character being an older person looking back on their life and telling this story. So in The Green Mile, it ends up being Paul who is looking back on his time and telling this woman the story of his life and this magical man, John Coffey, that he ended up spending a little bit of time with while he worked on death row. I mean, would you consider John a magical person? I don't know exactly how we should describe him. I think it's whatever your interpretation is, and that's Stephen King for you. There's always these supernatural elements that are going on in his books, in his movies, but it's left to your interpretation. Think of when we talked about it. The concept of it is this evil, is this terror, but it's defined by each person, whereas... John Coffey's powers are defined by some people as a miracle, that he's a saint, that he's a gift from God in the more religious views of things. And to him, it's a burden that he has to bear, that this is a gift and that he is so apt to help people, but also that feeling such intense feelings and feeling people's pain and knowing what they've done is such a hardship for him that it almost breaks him. But throughout the story, we see John really almost seem his happiest when he's helping people, when he's healing Paul's bladder infection, when he's bringing back Mr. Jingles. And this almost seems Mr. to- Mr. Jingles is a mouse, yes. by the way, not a person. But no. still, very important character in the movie. Yes, Mr. Jingles is very important. But it's almost like that is when he's at his happiest when he's able to help even before Paul talks to him acknowledges him a couple times he goes Mr. Paul I might talk to you over here because he sees him limping around because he has this terrible bladder infection and it's almost like that's just what he wants to do he just wants to help because you think of his character and he arrives at the prison and is so intimidating to everyone because he's ginormous they block him out to be like this eight foot tall, 350 pound guy. The best I've ever seen in a movie at making someone look giant. Yeah, he looks humongous. They do a really good job in doing shots that make him look like that based just doing perspective shots. But you think about how people view him. People view him as a monster because of his false accusation of raping and murdering these two little girls that he is just the most evil person. And then he's huge and giant and people automatically think, oh my gosh, this guy's going to be dangerous. He's going to be a handful. He's going to be too much. And he's just not that person. He is gracious for everything that the officers do for him. He wants to heal people. He wants to help people. He's the exact opposite of everything that society has pictured him to be. John is this ultimate good, right? But then there's these characters that are the complete opposite, where they're these ultimate bad people. The worst being Wild Bill, who is in prison and just is mean all the time with almost no hesitation of ever not being mean or conniving or playing a prank or being disrespectful. And it's really just the exact opposite of what John is. And it's awesome to see them on opposite sides of the cell bays with this tension that ends up meeting in the middle of good and evil. 
Because at one point, they are the only two left on the death row cell block. So it is an interesting contrast. I didn't think about it in that sense that they are on these opposite sides. But John always senses that there's something wrong with this guy. There's something he's bad. He's bad boss. Like he tells Paul that all the time. And while Bill is played by Sam Rockwell, who I don't know what's up with Sam Rockwell, but directors feel comfortable giving him scripts where he is auditioning for the worst person possible. And he's like, yeah, sign me on. Sounds good. To be fair, he's very good at it. He's super good at it (laughs) and super believable. But how many Sam Rockwell roles have you seen where he just plays the nastiest, grossest, like racist, meanest guy ever? He's a terrible person in Three Billboards. He is a Nazi in Jojo Rabbit. (laughs) Even though he becomes kind of endearing at the end, but that's a whole different. He becomes endearing at the end of both of those movies. This movie, not at all. He is just gross and terrible throughout the whole movie. But it is very interesting because you don't know the dynamic between John and between Wild Bill throughout the whole movie because you see John is having kind of this power of knowing what people's nature is like, knowing good, knowing bad. And he feels so strongly towards Wild Bill and senses Wild Bill as the officers are bringing him into death row and telling the officers, watch out, watch out. And he's right because Wild Bill is faking that he's doped up on sedatives and then attacks all of the officers. And so you know that he has this sixth sense about him but you don't know what it is. But then you find out towards the end of the film that Wild Bill is actually, spoiler alert, the person who raped and murdered the two little girls that John is accused of raping and murdering. So he's innocent. John is innocent this whole time. And everyone knows it towards the end because John shares his vision and his knowing of what happened through his powers with Paul, Tom Hanks's character. And then he knows he now has this information. And how do you share that? How do you make a man innocent based on like a telepathic communication that you get from somebody? Exactly. You don't. So once it's time, Paul kind of just has to go with it. And he tries his very hardest to talk to John and make things comfortable for John when it's and John seems okay. And what's interesting about John saying he's okay is, as I said before, you're watching this movie and you automatically like this guy. There's something about him where he's sweet and he's humble and feels innocent from the first scene of meeting him that you want to like this guy and you grow to like this guy because he's doing so much good and he's fostering so many positive connections with good people and it comes to his execution day and you're like oh my god now we know he's innocent he's a good-hearted person he just healed the warden's wife from cancer and I want this guy to escape I want I want Paul and all the other officers to take him in a car and drive him somewhere and then Paul has this scene with John where he asks what can I do for you what do I do how do I help you and John explains to him about all of the pain he feels from feeling other people's pain and about all of the things he knows and how distressing it is to him and how just ending it and letting him watch one movie because he's never watched a flick and that's all he wants would make him feel better. And it's almost like he's reaching out of the screen and telling the audience that it's okay. It's like I felt John's character telling me it's okay I'm going to go now and I feel okay about 
it really hits so hard. And I think one of the other reasons that that scene specifically hits you kind of in your core is you know all this stuff about John. And once it comes time to for him to get the chair, he walks into this room and the first thing you hear is make sure you kill him twice. Yeah, from the parents of the little girls who were murdered. And, and I watched that and I wanted to just yell at the screen like, shut the fuck up, you have no idea. But then you're like, oh, well, they don't. They don't know. And they'll never know. And there's never going to be that closure for them. And it's like you're taking away from this guy's moment. And you have John coming into that room and telling the officers, I can feel everybody's hate on me. I can feel it. It feels bad. And he's. They do a great job of making you feel it as the person watching. They have the camera on the audience from the door that they walk through. You see it. You can feel everyone staring daggers at you. So they do a really good job of that. And that just further makes this scene amazing. And at this point in time, this is the third execution we've seen in this movie and the most crowded execution we've seen in this movie. There's a ton of people at this public execution. So it is overwhelming because there are a lot of people and you feel that hatred. But then he sits down and says that to the officers that I can feel their hatred. I can feel all of this. And Brutus, one of the other correctional officers, looks at him and says, we don't hate you, John. Just feel us. And it's all of the officers who have been with him for the whole time in death row that stand around him and evoke such an, an emotional response. By the end of it, every one of the officers is crying because they've built such a connection to this man and have watched him heal so many things. He brought back to life Mr. Jingles. That was the first time they they all witnessed it. And then he healed the warden's wife. And you saw all of his powers and how sad it was at the end for him to go. But it was this moment of closure. And then going back to where we started, you flash back to Paul as an old man telling his friend this story of his time in death row. And he has this quote that he says at the end of the movie that tied both of our films together. And I was like, are you serious right now? So he says to his friend after he shows her that he still has Mr. Jingles through all of who's these alive. years. Who's alive. He's this little mouse who years and years into the future is still alive. And then he tells his friend that I'm 103 years old so he's or it's like 108 or something so time has substantially passed like 60 plus years at this point and so this mouse who was still alive 60 years is still alive and it's because John touched him and transferred some sort of powers and some sort of immortality but he will still die eventually blessing slash curse onto him. And it's interesting that Paul then takes it as his own curse because he knows he has seen all of these people die before him and has had to say goodbye and has loved and lost and doesn't know when his time will be. And he throws out this quote and he says, it's my atonement. You see, it's my punishment for letting John Coffey ride the lightning. And I was like, atonement what a perfect <laughs> fit into our whole entire theme but it is, i love that quote too yeah but it is him searching for this redemption and for him it is walking a green mile pasture every day from the retirement community he lives in 
and going to see Mr. Jingles, who is still in the same cigar box that he's been in for 60 plus years. So is there anything that you didn't like about this movie? It was so hard because this movie made me feel things and made me cry and made me laugh and made me connect with the characters. And it was so nitpicky to find a dislike. But again, as much as we try not to talk to each other, there is one scene that happened that I looked at you and I was like, okay, that's ridiculous. And it's when Tom Hanks's character, Paul, comes home to his wife, who's played by Bonnie Hunt. And she's like making dinner in the kitchen or something like that. And he comes up behind her and starts kissing her because he's just been healed of this bladder infection. And he's having a great day and he moves her hair. But Bonnie Hunt has the worst wig on ever. So when he moved her hair, it was like he was moving a sheetrock away. Like it didn't (laughs) it didn't move like a normal wig or hair would. And it was so off putting and weird to me. So nothing about the movie as a whole, just that one really small detail about her wig. That was the only thing I disliked because I absolutely adored this movie. That's more than I have, but I guess I could nitpick if I really wanted to. And I would, I guess my nitpick would be, wouldn't they end up just beating Wild Bill after all of his shenanigans? He gets away with like five things. No, because that transitioning into my strengths is the strength of this movie. It's all good. Is that all of these characters are so good. And not just good in terms of acting, but all of these officers that Paul has built a death row, Green Mile subsection of this prison into humanizing everybody and remembering that everyone is people. So even while Bill, who spits on them and spits a moon pie in their face and threatens to throw shit on them and pees on them and yells at them and says racist things to them and mean things to them, they still, although they put him in solitary a few times, which is problematic, but they still try and treat him like a human being because they know that everyone there deserves that, to be treated like a human being. And that's what they spend a lot of the movie teaching Percy, kind of the new correctional officer on board, about what is right and what is wrong because Percy is very much us versus them and these guys did something wrong and they should pay for it and we should kill their pets and we should not give them food or not give them drinks and treat them like animals. And it's interesting watching the officers battle with his dynamic personality and trying to kind of fix that thought process. And it's always something, personally, me, someone who's worked in the prison system before, it's always been an argument of, can empathy be taught? Can you teach it or is it just your nature? And Percy, I feel like, is a character that could not be taught to be empathetic towards other people's suffering or towards other people's situations because he just saw the bad in it and that they deserve to be punished. But the interesting thing about Percy's character is bad things ended up happening to Percy because of how shitty of a person he was. So then I got caught in this cyclical cycle of 
wait, but does Percy deserve that because he's being bad? Or am I just adopting Percy's mindset too? Well, here's the thing about Percy and we haven't talked about him yet. And I had a couple things that I wanted to talk about with Percy watching this movie. He reminds me of another movie character and that is Malfoy from the Harry Potter movies books. And that is that he's a bad guy, but almost doesn't have the stomach for it. Well, you pity him a little bit because he gets in these situations where he needs to step up his game and be more bite and less bark. Where while Bill comes in and is attacking the other officers, and Paul has a gun ready to shoot while Bill and says, Percy, hit him, do something, do something. And Percy just stands there and doesn't do anything. And then you have another scenario where while Bill grabs Percy and then Percy pees himself. And it's these moments where you should feel bad for him. Because he is just puny and he is scared and he's not equipped for this job and you should feel bad for him, but you also don't because he's such a shithead. Yeah. He also made one of the inmates deaths awful. And after that, I was kind of okay with anything negative that happened to him. But yeah, Percy kind of sucks. He does. So my strengths for this movie, The Green Mile, is everything. I really liked just everything about it. I couldn't find a weakness. It's all good. The characters are good. The acting's good. The story's good. It's engaging. The three hours fly by. I think that's very important in long movies. It is important. And the length of this movie is so important, especially after reading those reviews. I'm glad you brought up the length because it was something I wanted to talk about here because I was so enraged by these reviews that were saying, oh, it's just three hours. That's too long. It dragged out. It didn't do blah, blah, blah. The plot dragged out. Absolutely not. It was so smartly paced, in my opinion. You have the first hour of the film that is just an introduction to all of these characters and building up all of these characters. And you don't even get to the supernatural healing element of the movie until after an hour in. And then you get into that and then you get into kind of the conclusion that all these characters face. And so reading these reviews, it was interesting because reading Roger Ebert's review, he gave this movie a a glowing review and absolutely loved it and equated the passing of time in this movie to how slowly time passes in the prison system. And it was something that I didn't think about when watching that movie But now it does make sense that these guys are on death row. They're awaiting their final moment and they don't know when it's going to come. They don't go into the Green Mile and have a set date of this is the day you're going to die. They just let them know like, hey, it's a few days away. What can we do for you? So the length of this movie really helped you connect to all of these characters, but also get a sense of the passing of time and how time weighs on the soul. And I thought that the three hours did fly by. And so if you're thinking about not seeing this movie because it's three hours and nine minutes long, give it a watch because it really does fly by. Before we knew it, it was almost over. And it is insanely, insanely good and gives you time to really connect to all of those characters. You want to hop on over to Atonement? Let's do it. Strengths and weaknesses. What's your strength? Um, Saoirse Ronan, despite me hating her character, She was a very well-acted 13-year-old and really compelled me to want to watch her more, even though I was seething at the very thought of her being on screen. She was a very convincing younger girl, but also had a lot of depth 
to her. And so I just thought she did a good job. And also the score was my strength. It won an Oscar. But the score is really cool in this movie because so much of this false accusation theme is centered around this letter that Robbie types in a typewriter. And Saoirse Ronan character, Briny, is a playwright at a young age, and she types up plays and types up books and things like that. So a lot of this movie is based on the typewriter and based on typing. So what the score did was they integrated those typing sounds into the score, which I've never seen done before like that. It was really, really cool. It was the most amazing thing I've heard. I was so happy to hear it. The first time I heard it, I was like, oh, that's cool. But then they layered it throughout the entire movie. And I was like, I love that they hit this really hard because it was very important for them to hit this really hard. My strengths are, I also put acting, but I put a different actor. I put James McAvoy because he was very good in this. He was charming and funny, but also angry when he had to be and also very serious when he was in these war scenes. And I thought he just did a great job of being the lead of this movie. And one of the best known scenes of this movie and one of the scenes that a lot of people talk about is a five minute straight no cut scene they do when they're at Dunkirk. And his staging in that scene, in particularly going back and watching it, he does an amazing job portraying all of these emotions while walking through this post-battle world and seeing all of these people who are wounded and seeing all these people who are running around drunk in this chorus who's singing and these people on this Ferris wheel. And there's so many different things going on, but you continue to pull his emotions through on the screen as he's doing this. So just the fact that this was done in one take, which I just love seeing movies that are done like that. I think they're just really fun to watch those really good shots. But seeing his emotions be so consistent through that one take was really cool to see. My other one is just the story. I, I liked the story. I liked that it was almost a redemption for Briny. It was nice to see. Agreed. My one negative for this movie was that it did feel a little choppy. As I was thinking about it, I didn't know what more I wanted, but it really was like Briny was 13 and then she was 18. And you could tell the passing of time through her because she was went from being 13 to 18, whereas Kara Knightley and Robbie, they all looked the same. So seeing them, you couldn't tell where they were, but they showed the passing of time through Briny's character and they showed her at 13, 18 and what, maybe 70 or so. And so you wondered what happened to her throughout all those times. But then I got stuck on it because I was like, does it really matter what happened to her through all those times? Because although this is a story about her trying to atone for these things, is she the central focus of this story? And I don't think she is. I think Robbie and Cecilia are the central focus of this story. And that's what you see her talking about at the end when she writes a book about this and saying, I gave them this love story because their time was cut short and they didn't get what they deserve. So I don't know. I just felt like it was a little too choppy at at times. I caught myself kind of checking out at times of this movie. And I think that goes with what you're saying. And that's my weakness is that 
was a little unmemorable at times because thinking about it now, I can tell you everything that happens while Bryony's a child. And then once Robbie gets taken away, it jumps. And I can't really tell you what happens between the time that it jumps and the time that he's doing that long walk that you talked about. From there to when Bryony is at Lola's wedding and then goes to Cecilia and Robbie's apartment. Between those two moments, I can't really tell you exactly what was happening that propelled the story forward because it didn't really feel like anything was happening. So that's mine. That's fair. Staying on the topic of Bryony, though, there was one scene that she was in that was one of my favorites in this movie, and it is my little detail that made a big difference. You see Bryony as a kid who's looking out from behind her window. She's seen Cecilia and Robbie in the fountain. She's seen all of these things through a different lens. And then there's a scene after when you were talking about she goes to Robbie and Cecilia's apartment to try and apologize and to try and make things right and then let them know that, hey, I saw Lola at her wedding and now I know that it was Benedict Cumberbatch's character who sexually assaulted her. And I know Robbie is innocent now. After she leaves the apartment, after they pretty much don't want anything to do with her, there's this scene where it stops. And she is in front of a brick wall and you pan down and Robbie and Cecilia are kissing behind the window. And then you pan down and there's Briny at the brick wall outside of the window. And for once, she's not looking through and you see these two characters who aren't looking at her because they don't care. That's not what they're about. They're still upset about it, but they're moving on with their lives and she is still stuck on it. I loved that scene. I thought it was really cool. My small detail is the green dress that Kira Knightley was wearing and she didn't wear it for that long, but that little splash of green on the screen makes all of the shots pop a little bit more. And it's really important that those shots pop because those are the shots at the pinnacle of the story. And that dress is gorgeous. And I think anyone would love to wear it. It's iconic. It's a beautiful, beautiful dress. But I also think when you look at the silhouette, the color, it's bold, it's sexy. It's pretty much backless back there. So you see Cecilia as this adult and she can make her own decisions and she can decide how to respond to this letter that her sister took in a very different way than she took it because she's more mature and because she's older. And that dress was so sophisticated and so gorgeous and just stood out and stuck out like a sore thumb compared to everybody else. And everyone else in that scene was dressed beautifully and all the guys were wearing tuxedos and looked very dapper, but I can't even remember anybody else because that dress was so beautiful. You just can't take your eyes off her. And it's very important because those are the scenes where she has to decide whether she's going to back Robbie or back her family. You want to go to the small details of the Green Mile? Yes. So I already talked a little bit about my small details. And that was just the concept of the sacredness of human life, talking about the correctional officers and how Paul really ran a whole mile where he wanted to teach everyone to value human life and to be empathetic towards these guys' situations. But also how well this movie stressed how to appreciate the very small things in life, the things we see as insignificant or as small or that we pass by without notice. And you see that in John's character because he does appreciate those small things in life. When they're taking him out of the prison to go see the warden's wife, he stops so many times because he looks at the stars and is telling Tom Hanks's character, 
hey, boss, do you see that star formation? And Paul's like, yeah, yeah, come on, let's go. But he's stopping to appreciate those small things. He's picking up that clump of grass and smelling it. They're taking care of this little tiny mouse who at first seems like a burden and we have to get rid of this rodent in here. And it's all these little things that you don't really appreciate or take time to appreciate in life. And it really captured that feeling because you take these things for granted a lot. That's a good one. You got really good small details. Thank you. So mine is that the green mile floor, I believe they call it a used lime color. And it ends up being pretty much the same color floor as the retirement home that Paul ends up in at the end. Kind of signifying for me that he just can't escape this floor. Yeah, you watch him walk the green mile so often. You watch him walk it while he's working at the actual green mile working on death row. You see him at the very beginning of the movie as an older man walking these green pastures to get to this shed where we find out that Mr. Jingles is. You see him walking in the hallway of the green tile. So there is that theme throughout the whole movie that is really, really cool. And overall, this whole movie is really, really cool and worth it. Both movies. As is Atonement. So good. Both of these should move on, honestly, if we're talking logistics of advancing brackets. But we can only choose one winner. Yep. And I think we know it. I think we do. Okay, give us a countdown. Three, two, one. The The Green Green Mile. Mile. So, so good. The Green Mile was really, really great. Don't let the runtime scare you. Also, Atonement, really, really great movie. Both recommended. We had fun watching them. We loved both of them. We loved getting these suggestions for these movies. So on to our next battle that will drop on Thursday, July 30th. We will continue on with our eight verse nine seeds. And we'll be talking In Cold Blood, which is our eighth seed, versus The Witches of Eastwick. Right now, our brackets on Challenge are live and our scores are updated. And as of right now, we have no perfect brackets left. We're only five or six battles into this challenge. Nobody's brackets are perfect. But there are still some people with some impressive high scores. There are some people with some low scores, but it's really fun to see where everyone is being placed as we update these. So check that out. Check out our next podcast. Please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at The Cinematchups. We post there regularly. For The Cinematchups, we are Kim Kohler and Sean Rodenberg. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.